2: hey everyone i'm jean Chatsky. thanks so much for joining me today on her money we are well into a gorgeous fall season at least it is gorgeous here in philadelphia i hope it's gorgeous where you are and we've heard from so many of our her money moms this year that college planning has just been a bear and Yes, COVID is absolutely 100% a factor there with some schools going back and forth on remote learning versus hybrid learning versus in-person learning. And of course, we all want our kids to be safe, but the truth is our biggest college question marks have been pretty constant every single year. We are all wondering, how do you pay for it? How do you plan for it in a way that gives our kids the best head start on their futures while also not compromising our own goals for life and retirement. Today, over 43 million Americans have student debt. That is one in eight of us. And women typically borrow more than men. That's according to the American Association of University Women. The average debt that student borrowers carry for a bachelor's degree is around $30,000. But then when we Take a look at secondary degree programs like dental school, for example. That debt shoots up to close to $300,000 per borrower. But it should come as no surprise that the vast majority of us will have to borrow. According to data from the College Board, the average sticker prices for tuition and fees for full-time students in the 2020-2021 school year, just remember, this is tuition and fees. This is not room and board. This is not beer and pizza. The average sticker prices were $10,560 for a public four-year college. That's for in-state students and $37,650 per year at private nonprofit institutions. That's every single year. The question is, does hearing these statistics really do anything except for make us worry? We all have unique financial situations, and Where our kids decide to go to school and what they decide to study has absolutely everything to do, both with the price tag of their education and their ability to pay down that debt. And these days, there are so many different ways to pay for college. Some of us will use a mix of savings from a 529 plus federal loans. Some of us will use income along with a mix of federal loans and private loans. Some of us will have the benefit of scholarships. And then, of course, there is the FAFSA, the form that every student needs to fill out that will help us unlock access to so many of these opportunities. The point is, yes, the picture is complex. Complex is probably an understatement, but there are options for everyone. I have, through my career as a reporter, had the opportunity to meet and talk with so many experts in the college scene and the financial landscape. And I got to tell you that very few have made as consistent sense to me as Christine Roberts. She is head of student lending at Citizens Bank. She's been in the financial services industry for 30 years. She tells it straight, and she has helped educate countless families to figure out what their best options are when it comes to borrowing for school or not borrowing for school so that they can realize their aspirations without breaking the bank. And so I'm so happy to have her here today. Christine, welcome.
0: Thanks so much, Jean. And what an incredible introduction. I'm so happy to be here. So happy to speak with you about such a complex point in a family's Life cycle, right? So, where families are starting today and how they're feeling about paying for college, it's such an important topic. So, thank you so much for having me.
2: Thank you so much for being here. Can we start with the news? There is a line item in the news. It has just been in so many newscasts lately. I know it's weighing on many, many people who currently have student loans. And that's the fact that federal student loan forbearance is coming to an end at the end of January 2022 payments pick up again February 1st. So what can borrowers do to prepare for that right now? And what should they be doing once their payments pick up again?
0: Sure. It's a great question, Jean, and I think on on so many current student loan holders' minds. So what we're recommending for individuals and families is assess where they are at today and where they think they're going to be financially come February 1st. And please realize that the way the federal government is returning people to payments is just to make it easy. If you owe $10,000 when you went into forbearance, you've had zero interest, right, accumulated onto that loan. And let's just say you had eight years left to pay when it went into forbearance. When the clock restarts, they will then re-amortize your loan but for that same eight year period. So provided that you didn't make any payments, your payment should be the same as it was before you went into forbearance, right? You didn't accumulate any additional debt. If you made payments during your forbearance, which I know many families use their stimulus checks in order to help pay down student debt, that would then lower your principal amount from 10,000 to whatever the amount you paid, you will then have a new payment schedule that would be lower than what you went in with. So the first thing is you should call and speak to your servicer. Most federal loans, the way they've done it is a student would be with one servicer. Now, if you went to grad school, you may have two servicers, but The most important thing is talk to your servicer first and foremost to understand where they believe, I don't think they've done all the recalculations yet, but where they believe your payment is going to be starting February 1st. Then really understand what your financial position is. Can you make those payments? If you can, then you're fine. If you were on automatic payments, the government is saying so far, those will just automatically restart. If you weren't, then you need to get back into the habit of making those payments, setting up your automatic payment from your online bank account or your reminders of when those payments are due. If you feel that you're going to struggle, now is the time to call your servicer and talk about what your options are. There are additional forbearance available for financial hardship through the federal government. There's also income driven repayment plans that, while we as an industry, the private side, do not support income driven repayment plans because all you're doing is adding more to what you owe. For those who are in trouble and don't meet a forbearance criteria with the federal government, it's a way to at least make some contribution, keep your loan current while you're getting back on the pay scale to be able to support your debt. And so I really recommend families calling now even though payments don't start till february 1st because a couple of reasons two of the largest federal servicers have notified the government that they will no longer be servicing loans and that is millions upon millions upon millions of families that are going to get transferred so there's going to be a lot of transition of moving loans to other servicers and so it's best to get in with your servicer now, one to understand your position and your options if you need them, but get yourself set up now so that if and when you return to repayment, you're set up in a way that you want to continue. So if you get transferred as an income driven repayment plan from Naviant to whomever you're going to get transferred to, that will continue. And you can imagine the amount of confusion I think that's going to go on when people are getting transferred and going back into repayment, how many more phone calls the new servicer is going to get. So, you know, we're counseling folks today to say, put all of that in order now, because once you get transferred, you can always change it if you need it, but do your homework now so that it's much less stressful come February 1st. Can I just ask
2: a question about something else that you mentioned, and that's the decision to go into income-based repayment. You said basically what you're doing is just adding to what you owe. Can you explain that a little bit more? Because I think sometimes people don't understand what is exactly happening when you stretch out the term and when you lower your payments, even when it's necessary, I've advocated for this in a number of different situations. I think an explanation would be huge.
0: Yeah, you know, I think to your point, Gene. So many people don't really understand, and we get a lot of calls from people who say, "Well, I was on an income-driven repayment plan, and now five years later, I borrowed ten thousand, and now I owe you know fourteen. What happened?" So here's what happens. Let's say your payment is. a month, $200 in principal and $50 in interest. And you go on an income-driven repayment plan for only $25 a month. Well, there's a huge delta there, right? You got $225 of which 25 is interest that you have not paid on that loan. That interest then gets added back into your principal of what you owe. So the interest continues to accrue within your loan. So it keeps getting added onto your loan and onto your loan. And so your principal amount then begins to grow and grow and grow. And so number one, that's one of the reasons why we in the private industry do not offer income-driven repayment plans because you're compounding your debt in a way, as far as the prudential regulators are concerned, is really not appropriate. But we understand why the government has the program so that Quite frankly, if you're a first year out of college and you're struggling to get you know, a job or you're in a lower paying job, you know you're going to begin to make more money over the next few years. And so if you do have to go on an income driven repayment plan, you should have a timeline to say when that's going to stop. And we say don't be on it more than two years because, again, all you're doing is adding to the debt that you already have, which means your payments later are either going to be longer or bigger and it's harder.
2: The last item in the news that I want to touch on is loan forgiveness. We know that there's some changes coming down the pike, or at least it looks like there might be some changes coming down the pike. This has been an area where it's been very, very difficult for people to find relief. Is this for real this time as you're reading it?
0: So there's two different things there, Gene. One is, and it's made headlines most recently, is public service loan forgiveness, right? They have fixed the public, supposedly, <laughs> fixed the public service loan forgiveness process. So if you go in the Wayback Machine, probably about three years ago, there was a whole lot of press around the fact that of the over 100,000 people who applied for public service loan forgiveness, less than 1% were, were actually approved. And that's because the process was bad. You had to be in this program for 10 years in order to get the forgiveness. You had to file paperwork every year. Paperwork was getting lost. People didn't realize that they had to file paperwork every year. And so a benefit that was promised to these individuals if they stayed in public service for 10 years or more was not attainable based on how the process was set up. And so what you're hearing about today as far as you know, the loan forgiveness, first and foremost, is the fact that they have fixed the public service loan forgiveness process. So all of those people, that 100,000 or so people who had applied for public service loan forgiveness will be able to go back, reapply, and have that applied. As a benefit that they should have already received. And so we are very much in support. I'm very much in support of the government has promised a benefit to individuals who have spent more than 10 years in low to moderate income schools, hospitals, rural communities, government service, the district attorney's office, places where, quite frankly, if those people went to the same industry somewhere else, they would make more money, right? And it's also for people who have dedicated themselves to not-for-profit organizations, et cetera. And so that is phenomenal, right? I think those people are deserving of a benefit that's been promised to them and they finally fixed that. So that's great. The other headlines that you're hearing about is there's two camps. One is asking for $50,000 in loan forgiveness for every student loan holder. The other is asking for 10000 in loan forgiveness for every student loan holder. And there's a whole lot of debate that is still going on about that, where you know people feel that it's a benefit that should be available to families. The hard part is, number one, it's sort of, again, a one-size-fits-all. So it's not whether or not you need to have loans forgiven, whether or not you're economically challenged in some way it's everybody. So it doesn't matter right now the way the proposals are. It doesn't matter whether you're an attorney at one of the top law firms in the country, or if you're a school teacher in an inner city school, everybody's getting the same benefit. Now, whether or not that's right or wrong is just part of the debate. And so the government has to figure out how to cover that debt, right? Because the interest rate on student loans is used to fund other programs within the government. Matter of fact, a good portion of it goes to fund the Affordable Care Act, right? So if you take that money away, the way the government accounting works is you have to replace that with another revenue stream. And so they're in the process of trying to figure out whether or not they can do that. The biggest issue that I see with this is it doesn't solve the problem nor does it solve for the person who goes to school next year unless it becomes a permanent forgiveness. So the person who goes to school next year yeah, as a freshman and starts taking out loans isn't going to benefit from that unless they restructure the bills for it to become a permanent benefit. At which point, you really have to step back and ask should we not then just be increasing Pell Grants for low to moderate income families who don't have an obligation to pay some of that back? and or offer more free funds for families who meet a certain criteria. I always like to say, the way the federal government structures their loan program today, anybody can get a loan. That's not necessarily a good thing across the board. And and it's a great way for families to help their children go to school, but there's no analysis for ability to repay, ability to make payments on the loans that they're taking. And that sets families up for a whole lot of peril. The other side is, should a Bill Gates son be able to just take a federal loan, right? There's a whole dichotomy of discussion around that. But on the forgiveness side, we are not figuring out how to fix the ultimate problem, which is cost of attendance, quite frankly. And two, how it becomes a future benefit for people who really need the benefit versus just a one-size-fits-all benefit.
2: That's a really wonderful explanation and also a great way to transition to where I wanna go next, which is for those families who are looking at college next year, the year after. In reality, as we talked about at the top of the show, we've got three primary sources for college funding. We've got money that you are earning now, we've got savings that you've accumulated, and we've got borrowed funds. How do you figure out how to toggle those three levers? Like, where do you pull the money from and
0: when? What you need to start is first and foremost, in the research that you're doing and in the applications, quite frankly, for your child, making sure, number one, that you have multiple schools that your child would be happy to attend, right? I like to tell families, make sure you have at least five schools. People get money based on not only your family's financial composition, but how your student fills in gaps within a student body. And so once you get that information, you need to sit down and really, A, have a conversation with your child slash children, because most families have more than one child that is planning to go to college and say, all right, this is how much we think we're going to need to pay per year. Number one, what are you asking your child to do to help with that number, which is, is it scholarship money that you want them to apply for? Is it adding to their school resume, right? If they're just all sports, do you add something else to their resume to give them something more rounded you know, view to make them attractive to more schools who might be able to give them additional funds? Are you going to ask them to get a job to help pay for their pizza money, right? And so what is their contribution is one bucket. Then you say, okay, you've done everything you can to find free money. Now here's where our money comes into play. This is what we think we have to contribute on a cash basis. And this is what we think we're going to have to take out in loans in order to cover these different tuitions. Timing for whether or not you use cash versus loans, is really going to depend, I think, on the market conditions. We are now in a rising rate environment. Everybody's talking about that. Well, what that means in a rising rate environment is the cost to borrow is going to go up. So if interest rates today are about 3%, two years from now, they may be at four. That means it costs you more to borrow money. And if we're in a rising rate environment, that number should continue to go up for a period of time. None of us knows for how long.
2: So basically you're saying, and this is an important point because a lot of people borrow, right? Most people borrow in some way or another. And whether we're talking about federal loans or whether we're talking about private loans, if interest rates are going up, the rates are going to go up. Yep. And so you're saying if you are looking at your cost per year and you think overall you're going to have to borrow $10,000, you're better off borrowing that $10,000 freshman year rather than senior year because interest rates are likely to be higher. They are forecast to be higher.
0: Yes, that would be the the general idea, right? You should look at the savings that you have. Speak to your financial advisor because this is always a great place for them to help you. Speak to your financial advisor and say, I have this amount in savings which will cover two years right, of that gap number that we see. And given where the market dynamics have been, will your growth in savings outpace what the interest rate will be? So for instance, if this year you can borrow at 3% and your investments will make 5%, kind of makes sense to borrow at the 3% rate and let your investment continue to accumulate because you may actually in two years, or a year and a half be able to cover more than two years of school if you let your money continue to accumulate. And so this is sort of where you've got to, you got to see where the trade-offs are again with a financial advisor. But if you know, you can't cover all four years with the cash and you know, we're in a rising rate environment, then borrowing earlier would be better for you in the long run from how much you have to pay for school.
2: All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Hey there, listeners.
0: It's Nima Gobeer. I'm the co-host of MindShift the podcast where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I don't teach math. I don't teach reading. I teach people. You'll hear from teachers, parents, researchers, and students as we uncover innovative approaches in and out of the classroom.
1: It holds a lot about how we want students and young people to move through the world, how we want to set them up for
2: success.
0: Find MindShift wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I'm talking with Christine Roberts, head of student lending at Citizens Bank. We are talking about all things paying for college. So loans, most people take them. Can you make parents feel a little better about this?
0: You know, Gene, it is an incredibly emotional decision for families and incredibly emotional moments, right? You're so excited that your child has gotten into the school or schools of their dreams, And then you sit back and you go, I'm not sure I can make it happen for them. And that is the biggest, honestly, the biggest question I feel that we get from parents is, how do I make this happen, right? My son or daughter so desperately wants to go to this school. How do I do this? And the studies recently will tell you that almost 70% of families are taking out loans. And so, number one, you're not alone. Number two, you didn't fail your child by not being able to 100% cover the cost of education. I don't think any of us thought 18 years ago when we had children, that room and board, tuition room and board, sticker price at some schools would be almost $80,000 a year, if not more, right? And so it's, it's incredible to me, that number. Now, granted, that's the sticker price and most families get money. But to your point, you even said, right, tuition at a private school on average without room and board is $37,000 a year. That's an incredible amount of money. And so I really believe that having the conversation with your children and, and helping them understand that we want them to make good financial decisions. And sometimes that means you don't go to the college that you love, you go to the college that you really like because financially it's better for you, the student, and us as a family. And then really talk about what are the right options for borrowing? There's the Stafford loan, which everybody gets, right? Number one, everybody should fill out the FAFSA. And I say this a thousand times over, right?
2: Right. And it's FAFSA time, right? It's October. So it's FAFSA time. It is
0: FAFSA time. Fill out the FAFSA. So many parents say to me, oh, I know I'm not going to get anything. I'm not going to bother. Well, number one, you never know what you might need. Number two, you can't borrow federally at all if you don't fill it out. And three, there are schools that use the FAFSA for other types of either aid or scholarships, et cetera. So fill it out. That entitles your child to get the Stafford Loan. And the Stafford Loan for freshmen is $5,500, and then it goes up to $6,500, and then $75,75 for junior, senior year. That at least allows them, it's a super low interest loan, depending on how the government sets it every year. And it's completely 100% in your child's name. And it holds skin in the game for your kid, but it has zero effect on you and your credit. I think it's a great way also for your children to start their credit file because Gina's you and I both know you can't get credit if you don't have credit. And so when they graduate from college, if they've had a loan, it creates a credit file for them. So when they graduate college, they want to buy a car, take out a loan. It makes it easier for them. So start with looking at the Stafford loan and see how much of the gap that covers. Then the discussion is, Do you want your child to have the loan where you're going to be the co-signer? So basically you're going to lend your child your credit report because we in the private industry underwrite the parent, not the 17 year old kid.
2: So this is when you're done with the Stafford loan, you still need more money. You're Correct. looking at borrowing privately. So you've exhausted your federal options. Now you're looking at the private options. So you exhausted options. the
0: federal options for your kid. Let's make sure that we we'd separate the two, right? Because okay. a lot of people say this, take all your federal options first. Well, yes, your child should take their federal options first. But then that leaves the parent or the direct plus loan, which is a federal loan with a four and a quarter percent fee, but it's in the parent's name only.
2: Okay. We've exhausted the Stafford loan. Yes. The child's federal loan. And now we're like, okay, I need more money. Here are my choices. A private loan or a plus loan, a parent federal loan. Correct. How do you choose?
0: Well, the first question is whether or not you want your child to... Be primary on the loan, or whether or not you want to take the loan completely yourself. If you want the child to be the primary on the loan, there are no additional federal options. You have to go private. Okay. And so the next portion of the conversation or thinking as a family is: do we want to use our credit to help our child get a loan so that they are responsible and you're the backup for them when they graduate? Or Do you want to take the loan in its entirety on yourself as the parent? And, you know, this is important because a lot of families, again, Jean, this goes with there's a lot of parents who feel it was my responsibility to pay for my child's education. I'm going to take the entire loan. Or there are those that say my responsibility is to help my child get through college. And so they're going to be responsible for the loan, but I'm going to be their backup should they need it neither answer is wrong, right? And neither answer is right. It all depends on your family and your family dynamics and how you individually feel about filling this particular gap. And so should you decide that you want to be a cosigner, then there's an entire private industry that you're able to go to. There's multiple options for you. There's fixed and variable rates. There's five, 10, 15 year terms, interest only, deferred, full PI. So you have lots of options and you can talk to any of the lenders about what those options are that are available to you. And they can help you pick and choose what's best for your family. If you decide as a parent that you want to take the loan itself, then you really have two options. Again, the Parent PLUS Loan, Direct PLUS Loan through the federal government or private as well right so again the options available to you are in private multiple terms fixed and variable the federal loan has a four and a quarter percent fee private i'm gonna stop you
2: there i want to stop <laughs> you on that fee no 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 this is important i don't think people understand the fee i don't think people necessarily understand that it's there but i've heard you before equate it to a difference in the interest rate. So that 4.5% fee, that's like paying an extra, what, 1% interest, 2% interest, and how do you choose?
0: I can't give you an exact number there, Jean, because it all depends on what the rate was set at as to what the APY becomes, right? And there's a whole calculation there that, interestingly enough, for private loans, we have to release something called a TILA to you as a borrower, right? A truth in lending disclosure where we have to show you both the APR and the APY that says, this is your rate. This is how the rate goes throughout the life of the loan. And because we don't have any fees, they're pretty much the same number, right? The federal government does not do that calculation for you. So it can translate to almost an additional percentage point. So if you borrowed at 6%, it could almost bring you up to 7%. In total life of loan, but that calculation specific to whatever the interest rate is, etc. Regardless, you're paying a four and a quarter percent fee, right? And so it's like a tax, if you will. Right. Remember, what you borrowed and what you're paying back then is different, and it's calculated differently than what you see in, in the private sector.
2: On the flip side, those federal loans, the Parent PLUS loans, have repayment provisions that private loans don't have, typically.
0: They typically do. And look, I think the private loan, if your family is credit challenged, right, or income challenged, then the federal loans are good options. My hesitation with the federal loans always is that the federal loan allows you to borrow up to the cost of attendance. So let's just say you're a family of four making $70,000 a year, and your child chooses a school that you have to borrow $70,000 a year for. You can through the federal program, but that is a substantial amount of money to borrow when your income is only $70,000 a year. And by the way, as the parent, you are responsible for that payment, right? The child is not responsible. And I hear many, many times, by the way, my son or daughter has told me, if you borrow this, I'll pay it for you. Don't worry about it, which is great right? You always want to believe that your son or daughter is going to be successful enough in order to do that, but do realize that if they cannot pay that debt, you still owe it. Now, between private and federal loans, we share a commonality of assistance. There is forbearance for hardship within both programs. There is deferment if Well, if you go back to school, a parent loan works a little bit differently, right? If you go back to school, you can defer the loan. If your child goes back to school, you cannot. We do have loan modifications for families that have significant financial impact that we try to work and help support. Again, where it's a bit different is there's additional income-driven repayment plans available within the federal programs, provided that you set your loan up the right way, which is a little more convoluted on the federal side.
2: Gotcha. Thank you for all the detail. I appreciate how complicated this is. And I also appreciate that you are walking us through the weeds because I think the weeds are where people get stuck. And I think the other place where people get stuck is, and you touched on it a second ago, overborrowing. Is there a guideline for students? Is there a way for students and parents to think about these numbers when we talk about borrowing They get so big so fast that we often don't realize what they're going to do to our lives once we're in repayment. Is there a way to, ahead of time, figure out what's the right amount to borrow so that when my child, if they're responsible, gets out of school, they're not cratered with these loans? Or that when my child gets out of school if i'm responsible but heading toward my own retirement i don't get cratered like is there a guideline
0: yeah there's a couple of ways to look at it right one a lot of the industry says that you should not borrow more than what your i usually say second or third year salary is likely to be but you can start with at least looking at first year right so the tool that i i talked about earlier gene where You can see based on the school and this major, this is how much money you're going to make when you come out, you know, figure a four or 5% raise per year to kind of get you to that
2: salary. Is that tool free? I mean, if I'm not a Citizens Bank customer, can I go on your website and can I access that tool?
0: You can. Within citizensbank.com, we have a student portal that you can go in and you can click into that and play around with it all day long.
2: Okay, fantastic. So that was the first guideline, and I rudely interrupted you.
0: No, 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 that's okay. And so that number is really what they say that you should not borrow more than that over the course of four years, right? So you think about it if you are pursuing a technology career and you look at it and the starting salaries are 85,90,000 and you need to borrow 60, okay, you're kind of in the safe zone. If you're going to be a teacher and you're starting salaries, you know, within 3 years is about, you know, 45,000 and you need to borrow 60. You really need to step back and think about is this the right school? Can I go somewhere else where I don't need to borrow as much? And how much more stress is this going to put on me? The simple numbers that we like to use is for every 20,000 that you borrow, depending on your terms and your interest rates, you're looking at about a $250 to $300 a month payment. And so let's just say you have to borrow 60, that would make it $900 a month. How much are you making in salary? Less taxes, right? So what's your take-home pay? and Can you afford the 900 or is that too much, right? And so that's where all of that beginning math really is so incredibly important because it can affect what you major in, where you go to school, how much you borrow, et cetera which is so important because you know three years ago, we did a study uh, with 1500 recent college graduates of which 67% said they did not know how much they had borrowed in totality. And 65% of that 67% said, had I known what this was going to do, I would have made a different decision, right? I would have gone to a different school or something. And so really just trying to make sure that you have all that information in the beginning so that you're not setting your kid up after four years to really be stressed or you, quite frankly, stressed, right? Because we're starting to be a little bit older parents. We're closer to retirement. You can borrow for your child's education, but you cannot borrow for your retirement. And so you've got to make sure that you're set up in a way that you're not then becoming a financial burden on your children because you thought you were doing better by paying for their education than saving for your retirement. I mean, it's such a quandary. It really is so difficult.
2: Yeah. So Christine, first of all, thank you for all of the detail. This episode has gone a little bit long And that is, in my book, just fine. I think for people who need this information, they really need it. So what I want to do right now is ask you to stick with me for one mailbag question, because we got one that is very pertinent to this episode. And then let everybody know that Catherine and I will release a bonus mailbag later in the week. How does that sound?
0: happy to
2: hang on. Okay. This question comes from Amy, and she says, Hi, Gene. My oldest is currently a high school sophomore, so we are quickly approaching the college years. We're doing what we can to save as much as possible while also prioritizing retirement. I'm wondering if there's anything else we can do now or over the next couple of years to maximize any available financial aid. For example, are certain types or accounts looked at differently for the FAFSA? Could we move money around or some?" how restructure our assets to maximize aid, anything we can encourage our son to do other than getting good grades, obviously, to make him more likely to receive merit aids or scholarships? What do you think?
0: What a great question. So first and foremost, Amy, speak to your financial advisor, right? Because the FAFSA does a two-year look back. This is the perfect time to do this. Speak to your financial advisor And make sure that he looks at and structures the savings, et cetera, that you have in a way, and all financial advisors understand this, in a way that will be beneficial for you for the FAFSA. And that may be certain monies going into accounts either with your children. There are certain types of accounts that don't count on the FAFSA. I'm not a licensed professional, so I don't give full advice on that front. But speak to a financial advisor because, again, the FAFSA does a two-year look back. And so while it's the sophomore year, which would be the second year, right, because remember, you're going to file in the fall of their senior year. You can at least get some benefit from possibly moving some of the assets around or restructuring your assets. So that's number one.
2: And let me just stop you there, Christine, because I know you're not licensed and you can't say this, but let me tell you, Amy, that your retirement plans don't count. So if you put money into a 401k or a Roth 401k or a Roth IRA or a SEP, that doesn't count. Money that you have in your home as home equity doesn't count. Money that you have in a small business doesn't count. We're not suggesting that you hide assets, but You want to be strategic about this. And so that just gets to the first part of your question.
0: Yes. And thank you, Jean. You're always a good balance for me for not having my license for this. So thank you. So first and foremost, speak to your financial advisor. All the things Jean's saying are completely correct as far as where you should think about putting your next dollar and or some of the dollars that you currently have. So the second thing that your son can do right now is go to the scholarship website. So there's FastWeb, there's scholarship.com, where he can go and begin the search to understand what he could qualify for, for free money. There is no limit within schools as to how much free money can be put to the table. And it does not count against you with any merit scholarships that they would be giving you. So if you get your financing letter from a school and it tells you, here's the merit we're going to give you, here's the Stafford loan, and then here's your cash amount. All scholarships can go against that cash amount without any penalty to you as a family. And I can't tell you how many uh, scholarships are left on the table because students do not do the work to apply for them. So that is a total activity that your child can do and figure out what would be available to them. Yes, there's grades, right? Grades are very important. But you know what? Your child is probably already working as hard as they possibly can from a grades perspective. So, you know, just making sure that they stay true to their capabilities is something that I think is always very important. Where I would then say again is where can your child round out their resume for school to make them more attractive and maybe even more attractive from a merit standpoint? I have a child who's very artistic and very sporty. How do I either add a third dimension to that or making sure that I'm looking at programs where they are able to use those two balances, right? I have a son who's really, really sporty and he's good academically, but not at the top. And so he's going to need to add something to his resume to make him that much more attractive than just being a great sports player. And so It's really taking a look at your child's situation and saying, what's the dimensions that will make my child more attractive to any type of school? And then the last thing is in your school research, right? So as you're looking at schools, what are the programs? How have they been hiring? Now you can really get into some really big research on the schools as far as what is the composition of their students? What are they looking for, not only in SATs and ACTs, but... What are the grade point averages? What is the composition of the student body? Where does my child fit from a uniqueness perspective? And you can always call the schools as well and kind of talk to them and see where your child fits in all of that. So that your last thing is really the more schools that your child applies to, the more diverse you will get a response financially. And then the last thing is prepare your child for two things. One, Don't fall in love with just one school because if you do that and that school gives you the least amount of dollars, you're then having to make a decision that's really a a harder financial decision versus, I really like these five schools. I'd be happy at all five schools. And if finances are a consideration for you, whoever gives you the best offer is where you can go because then that will cost you the least amount of dollars for the education. And I know this sounds so much like a business transaction when it's supposed to be fun and exciting and interesting, but I promise you, if you do this work before they go to school, the four years that they're in school will be fun, exciting, and interesting, and will be even more fun and exciting and interesting when they graduate and they don't have to pay as much. And so it's just, it's almost like you got to do the, you got to do this prep work with yourself, with your child, so that you're ready for that decision versus so many families don't. And then the child falls in love with one school. And then we get the, how do I pay for this school? And, and we try to say, what are their other options? No, no, they want to go to this school. They have to go to this school. And that becomes a very different emotional conversation with, with your kid.
2: Yeah. It's so much good parenting. It's so much psychology. It's so much more than just the money. Christine Roberts, you are fantastic. Thank you so much for giving us so much of your time today and for this great conversation.
0: Thanks for having me, Gina. Really appreciate it. And good luck, everyone.
2: And from me, a big thank you so much to all of you for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks again to Christine Roberts for all of her amazing insight. If you have a child headed off soon, know that I am thinking of you and this next chapter. It's expensive, yes, but so exciting to watch them spread their wings. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review because we do love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll talk soon.